Good morning, church family. My name is Ernest. Please join me in our passage reading today. It would be Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teach, wait, hold on one second. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Peace be to God. In the first and second century, there was um, a church leader named Marcion. And uh, he was born right as the time, right about the time that all the first disciples of Jesus uh, were dying. Uh, he was born early 80s AD. And so he was discipled by kind of the followers of those followers. So uh, like, uh, I don't know that Timothy discipled Marcion, but somebody in like Timothy's class, right? That kind of generation, the disciples of Paul, the disciples of Peter uh, discipled Marcion. Um, now, at that time in the church, the, the New Testament church would gather around and teach the Old Testament. I, I heard exclusively because the New Testament was still being developed. I, I heard, have heard before in the church that the New Testament church didn't have the Bible, uh, that they would just give witness to resurrection. And, and if you've heard that, that's not true at all. That Christian worship has always been centered around the study of God's revealed word. But of course, in the New Testament, they didn't have the completed New Testament. In that first century, they didn't have the completed New Testament church. And so they exclusively studied the Old Testament church, but, uh, uh, the Old Testament scriptures. But around the time Marcion came, started coming into the church and coming into uh, the life of a disciple, the New Testament was being developed. And he was very much drawn to the New Testament writings, books like Romans and Mark and 1 Timothy. And he was from Cenobites. He was not uh, of Hebrew descent. So the, the Old Testament texts for him were strange. They, um, they, they put him off a little bit. It, he was obviously trying to appeal to a more cosmopolitan Roman culture. And some of the stories that we read in the Old Testament narrative bothered Marcion. And so he actually developed a whole new Bible. It's called the Marcion Bible. And it didn't include the New Testament, or rather it didn't include the Old Testament. He, he began teaching um, that Jesus was something entirely new. It was an entirely new God, distinct from the God of Israel. And, it, and, and Marcion's ideas certainly gained a following until eventually he was denounced by the church, by church leaders like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian. He was denounced as a heretic. But this teaching, this, this teaching that... Some, somehow the God of the Old Testament is not the same God as the God of the New Testament has continued throughout church history. It's, it's kind of lived on 
even beyond Marthian. We're in a series right now called You Have Heard It Said. And we're looking at phrases from popular culture uh, that maybe you've heard. You've heard it said, these things. And maybe you've even heard these things in the church, in the context of a worshiping church. But what we're doing is we're taking those phrases and we're weighing them against the actual revelation of Scripture. And so today I want to look at this, this idea that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. Now, this critique certainly comes, again, from the outside world. Uh, People would say, how can you really believe in those fantastical stories of the Old Testament? But one of the main critiques is the, the, the character of God that's on display in the Old Testament. He, he seems vengeful or wrathful, whereas the New Testament God is merciful and kind and good. So, so what are we going to do with this? What, what, how should we respond to this? How should we think about this? And the fact that this question exists is, is one of the things that makes the passage that Ernest just read to us in, incredibly helpful And as we consider this text in Matthew 5, I want to look at three things. Number one, how did Jesus understand the Old Testament, right? So if we're going to say that Jesus is different than the Old Testament, let's let's kind of ask that question. How did he read and understand the Old Testament? Number two, how did Jesus teach the Old Testament? And number three, why do we need both? So how did Jesus understand the Old Testament? Now, this text, it's very famous. It's, it, it comes in the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of Jesus' quintessential sermon. It's his, it's his kind of main grand thesis. And, of course, he begins this with the Beatitudes. And if you've read through the Beatitudes, it's, it's this uh, amazing display of God's ethics, the ethics of the kingdom of Christ, which are really so different than anything else we've ever seen in the world. They're, they're so different than how we naturally operate But right after he kind of lays forth this grand ethical statement, Jesus says this, do not think, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't. I haven't come to abolish them. Rather, I've come to fulfill them. Now, the law and the prophets, okay, when you see that in the New Testament, it's it's referring to the whole of the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament, uh, the, kind of the Hebrew word for it is the Tanakh. And even if you have Jewish friends, they may even use this word, the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is, um, it's an abbreviation. It, it, it stands for Torah, okay, or the law. So that's the T. Uh, Nevi'im, or the prophets, the writings of the prophets. And then the Ketuvim, which is the writings. These are books like Psalms or the Proverbs or uh, Ecclesiastes. Those are all kind of included in the Ketuvim, right? So when Jesus says law and prophets, he's, he's abbreviating. He's, he's saying the Tanakh, the, the Old Testament. Don't, I've not come to abolish any of the Old Testament. But rather I've come to fulfill them. And then he says in verse 18, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. And this is an amazing statement. Not an iota, not a dot, which the, 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 the leaders of the temple would have used dots to kind of point out sounds that the Hebrew words made. We'll, we'll give a lesson in Hebrew another sermon. But, but he's saying every sound, every sound, it's an amazing thing that he's saying here. Every sound in the Hebrew text is there for a purpose. It's there for a reason. 
It will not pass away. It, it, it's, it's, it's purposeful. It's right. It's helpful. It will all be fulfilled. In fact, Jesus says, it will all be fulfilled by me. And so here's really the point that I want you to hear here. You, you can't, Jesus is saying you can't understand my ministry. You can't understand me. You can't understand what I'm trying to do. You can't understand me at all. You'll always miss me without the Old Testament. And at the same time, you won't understand the Old Testament without Jesus, right? These, he fulfills the Old Testament. He, he completes the Old Testament. The two go together. Now, if that's true about the Old Testament, Jesus says it's so important. And not a, not a sound, not a sound will pass away until it's all fulfilled. And how did he teach it? <laughs> how do we understand it all? And again, there's so much that we could talk about here. But how did Jesus teach the Old Testament? Right after the resurrection, Jesus met up with two disciples. There's this very famous scene in the Bible. And it's called the, the walk to Emmaus. And you may have heard about this. Jesus has been raised. He's walking to Emmaus. He meets up with these two disciples. They don't really understand kind of who he is. And he begins to teach them. And we read, this is from Luke 24, and it says, Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to these two disciples all of the scriptures. So this is Moses and the prophets. Again, another way of saying all of the Old Testament. He, he interpreted all of the Old Testament about these things that were concerning himself. Jesus walks through all of the Old Testament and he says, this is how it is fulfilled in me. So what he's doing here in Luke 24 is what he's saying in Matthew 25. I am fulfilling the Hebrew scriptures. They point to me. They all reveal truth about me. So what I want to do is, is kind of take sections of this. Now, this is going to be so... Uh, Basic. This is going to be such a, you know, the, 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 the idea that's coming to mind is like Chevy Chase at the Grand Canyon. You know, it's, it's, he, he doesn't really understand the Grand Canyon. He sees it and he's like, all right, we got to go. This is, this is that version of exploring the Grand Canyon because we're, we're just going to take a quick glimpse because there's, there's so much of a treasure trove in the Old Testament today. But I, I do want to just at least give you some glimpses of how Jesus taught the Old Testament. Before I do, let me, let me give you a help of what I'm trying to say here. I recently rewatched uh, the old movie Forrest Gump. Um, and if you've seen Forrest Gump, I think I found like the, the, like the Swedish version. I don't know what R means there. But anyway, uh, um, I recently rewatched uh, Forrest Gump. And, and if you've seen Forrest Gump, the, the movie begins on a day, okay, in Savannah, Georgia in 1981. You've seen the movie. If you haven't seen the movie, you've had a long time. I don't mind spoiling it for you. <laughs> but so it begins on a day in 1981. Forrest Gump is sitting on a bench in Savannah, Georgia. Now that same day, okay, the, the day that the movie begins, that same day, Forrest reconnects with his childhood friend Jenny. He finds out that he has a son named Forrest. And he gets engaged to Jenny. That, that same day, all that happens. And then just a few months later, he gets married to Jenny. Uh, a, a few months after that, you know, he, or during the marriage, he meets up with his, lieutenant, with his buddy, Lieutenant Dan. And there's some things that, that happen beyond that. I say this to say, if all you know is 
that day, from that day forward, that day in Savannah, Georgia, forward, if that's all you know about Forrest Gump, you can understand a few things about Forrest Gump, right? You, you can understand that he loves Jenny. You can understand that, you know, he has a son named Forrest. You can understand that he has a friend named Lieutenant Dan who has new legs. You can understand that he bulldozed Jenny's childhood home for some reason, right? You can understand these things about Forrest Gump, but, but if all you have is 1981 forward, if that's all you have, right, you can know a few things about Forrest Gump. It's not that you, it's not that you can't know anything about Forrest Gump, but you can't really know Forrest Gump. You can't really understand who he is. You can't really understand why he loves Jenny so much. You can't really understand why his son being smart, why that's so important to him. You can't really understand why Lieutenant Dan is so important to him. You, you don't know why he bulldozed Jenny's old house. If, if all you have is 1981 and beyond, the story, you can learn some facts about Forrest Gump, but the story loses its power. It doesn't really make any sense. But the magic of Forrest Gump is that while he's sitting on that bench, he reveals himself. He tells the story, he tells all of these stories about all of these things that have happened in his life from his childhood up until that point. And, and if you have that, it's only if you have the before 1981. If you have before 1981, then, then everything that happens after that scene on the bench makes so much sense and it's so powerful. And the end of the movie is incredibly moving in a much, much more incredible way. <laughs> In a much, much more powerful way, this is exactly what the Old Testament does for the person of Christ. I'm going to say this many times today, but you cannot understand the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus without the Old Testament, and you can't understand the Old Testament without Jesus. So again, I want to take you through a few passages. This is what Jesus is doing on the road to Emmaus. This is what he's doing, what he's talking about in, in Matthew chapter 5. And again, this is the Chevy Chase quick look version. But let's start. I want to look at the Tanakh that I talked about. And we'll talk about the, I want to start with the Ketuvim, just a passage from the Ketuvim. And we'll look at one that you've probably heard before. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here's King David, a thousand years before Christ, watching these sheep, trying to be a good and a faithful shepherd to them. And whether they know it or not, they depend on him. They are protected by him. They are cared for by him. And here's David reflecting on how the Lord does the exact same thing to him. Look, listen how David is talking about the Lord, how tender David is when he's talking about the Lord. Now, who is David talking about here? He's talking about the Hebrew God. He's, talk, this is, he's talking about the God of the Old Testament. But, of course, we know that this Hebrew God is Jesus. And how much does this text reveal to us the kindness and the character 
of Jesus. You know, in one way, without Jesus, you know, before Jesus, a thousand years before Jesus, this is a profound text, but with Jesus, oh, then it really starts to make sense. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the one who leads us into true righteousness by his life, by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who prepares a banqueting feast for us in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is the one who even now invites us to feast on his mercy and kindness and love as we remember him in communion, just as we're about to do in a few moments. Jesus is the one who invites sinful, confused, often lost people like us, like sheep, into the house of the Lord forever. What an invitation. Don't you see? Psalm 23. Nobody's trying to cut this out of the Bible, but you can't understand Jesus without Psalm 23. And you can't really understand Psalm 23 without Jesus. Again, I wish we could keep going in the Psalms. Again, this is the Chevy Chase version I wish we could look through Job as the young adults have been doing. I wish we could look through the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, but we've, we've got to keep moving. Let's look at the Nevim, the writings, or, the, or rather the prophets. We're going to look at a famous one. This is uh, Isaiah 7:14. You may have heard this one before at Christmas time. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, you may know this one from Christmas, but you, you need to know the backstory. It's an amazing backstory. Israel and Judah, I think, do we have, did, we, did the map make it? Okay, good. Okay. I, I sent this later. These guys are awesome back here. I get, if, if you knew how hard it was to work with me, you would want, you, <laughs> Kevin gets it. But anyway, uh, uh, so Israel and Judah, the people of God, they were, they were supposed to be united together. And they had separated. The two kingdoms had separated. And, and even though they had separated, they were at least supposed to be allies. But they weren't allies. And Israel had become Judah's enemy. Isaiah was a prophet of Judah. And Israel had teamed up with Syria, their arch enemy, this horrible nation that they both hated. And now this, this people, their, their, their brothers that were supposed to be their ally had teamed up with their arch enemy, and, and the report that had come is that Syria and Israel were going to come and attack Judah. That's the context of this. And God says to the prophet Isaiah, no, that's not going to happen because the woman, you're, you're gonna, there's going to be a child that's born. And this child is going to be a sign Emmanuel, that God is with us. And I'm cutting out a lot of the story here. But sure enough, what happens? A child is born. And then, surprisingly, Assyria, you see the blue country there, sweeps in and takes over both Syria and Israel, sparing Judah, and the people of God are saved. And this child had been born, and it was a sign to them that God was really with them. Can you imagine the relief that they felt that day? Everything was about to be destroyed. They were, they were totally about to be wiped out. And then in this totally surprising way that nobody expected, the Assyrians come in and sweep out their enemies. And they're rescued, and they're saved. And so in chapter 9, we read this grand exaltation. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government 
and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. Now the child that was born that I mentioned, it was the child of Isaiah the prophet. The child's name was Meher Shalal Hashbaz, okay. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Now many of you have never even heard that name, right. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. That was the name of the little child that was born. That was the sign that God was with them, that he would save them, which he did. But then there's all this exaltation, right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And you're, you're reading this. And if you're reading the book of Isaiah, you're like, wait a second. Is Meher Shalal Hashbaz the prince of peace? Is Meher Shalal Hashbaz the mighty God, the everlasting father? And ultimately... What we know is that you begin to see how prophecy works, where a prophecy is given and there's kind of an immediate fulfillment, but it all points to an ultimate fulfillment. And now we're on the other side of this. Jesus makes sense of this. He was the child born of the virgin who's the ultimate sign that God is with us. He is the mighty God. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. He is the one who established the king, the kingdom of David forever. I want you to see this. You can't make sense of Isaiah without Jesus, but you can't really know Jesus without Isaiah. How much more does this teach us about him? about his character, about who he is. How much more, if we really understand this story, can we experience him? You know, have you ever, have you ever had that happen to you? <laughs> Where you thought your whole land was going to be destroyed and then it wasn't and it was saved? I haven't had that happen, but gosh, what a relief that must be. Don't you see what this is saying? Jesus brings the same kind of relief to you. Jesus brings a much greater salvation to you, he's truly freed us. He's truly swept away all of our enemies. This is why Jesus says, don't, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm not, I'm not something totally different here. No, I'm just, I am here to fulfill these things. I'm here to make sense of these things. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a sound of any of this will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So we've looked at the Ketuvim, we've looked at the Nevi'im. But what about the law, the Torah? Now, the law, again, is, again, there's a lot in the law. And, and you have to understand the law in kind of two ways. When, when somebody says the Old Testament law, they're not just talking about the laws per se. Uh, like, you know, thou shalt not murder, Right. That is a law, but when they're talking about the law, the Torah, it's, it's the law, it's those kind of statements, and it's also the stories, which are instruction. So the law, I think a better way is the instruction of God. Like the, the stories are instructing us about who God is and the nature and the character of God. So let me look at kind of both senses of the idea of the law, or the Torah, or the instruction of God. So let's look at a law. Now, the Ten Commandments, all of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament except for one. And so let's look at that one. It's the Sabbath command, Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And then there's some instruction there, but I want to read verse 11. It says, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, 
And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. What is the purpose of the Sabbath? What's happening in the Sabbath? The Sabbath was given to the people for a practical reason. But it was also given to the people for a worshipful reason. When they rested, they were being reminded that only in God was their rest. Only in God could they be made full and well and whole. The the rest was both practical, we need rest, but it was also worshipful. When we stop working, we have to depend on God. When we rest, we have to rest in the Lord. And the Sabbath was given to them to, to, to be reminded that they were set apart. Just as God was holy, they were called to be holy. So as God rested, they were called to rest. And then Jesus comes in the New Testament and he says this. I want you to hear this. Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Now you can't understand that. That doesn't make any sense to you. It makes zero sense to you unless you really understand the Sabbath. And what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, don't you see, I am the one who gives rest. I I am the one that can really satisfy your heart and your soul and your life. I am the one who can make you holy. The author of Hebrews or just to strive to enter into the rest of the Lord. If you hear the voice of Jesus, don't harden your heart because he is true rest. Jesus makes sense of the Sabbath. Week after week after week, God was teaching these people that he was going to bring them rest, rest that he ultimately brought them in the Lord Jesus. Just like you can't understand why Forrest Gump tore down Jenny's childhood home. If you only watch from 1981 forward and Forrest Gump bulldozes the house, you're just like, well, what was that all about? It's kind of a weird thing to do. No, you have to know the backstory. You have to know the, the horror that happened in this house. And in the same way, you have to know the horror of the people of Israel trying to obey the law of God and how they couldn't do it and how they wouldn't obey the Sabbath and how they wouldn't obey any of his commands. And if you really understand that, when Jesus says, come to me, All you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Oh, then all of a sudden it makes sense. You understand who Jesus is. You understand the kind of rest that he actually is giving. Again, so much more to say here, but let's move on to the final kind of thing. We're still in Torah, but the narrative, and there's a lot to say here. Because this is where a lot of people's beef with the Old Testament comes into play. People don't like these stories about God's wrath. Stories like Sodom and Gomorrah, where God violently destroys these two cities. Or when the Israelites go into the land of Canaan. I mean, let's be honest, it's it's kind of hard to read some of these things. They're to devote these people to complete destruction, killing every man, woman, child, and all of their livestock too. There are times when God punishes his own people and it seems very severe. The narrative of the Old Testament, and I want you to hear this, is severe. And it's severe in both its judgment and its mercy. And and I want to, in order to understand this, I want to give you kind of two things to understand here. A, A little note on the justice and mercy of God. 
and a note on time, okay? So let's start with justice and mercy. Now, wrath, we don't like that word, but you do like it. Wrath is the appropriate response to injustice. So you can only say, I don't like the word wrath if you don't care about justice, right? So you can't say, I don't like wrath and I like justice. Those two ideas are incompatible. So if you've said that, that's inconsistent. You, 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 you have, if, you, if you care anything at all about justice, then you have to understand the concept of wrath. And wrath or anger against injustice is the appropriate response to an injustice. When an injustice occurs, right? There's, there's many emotions that we feel, right? So when you, when you hear about, just right up the road here, women being drugged up, abused, and then sold night after night after night for sex. Your response to that should be sadness. Your response to that should be discouragement in some ways, but your real response to that should be anger. <laughs> that is wrong. That's an injustice that's occurring. When you hear about children that, you know, there's no... They're not being cared for. They don't know where the next meal is going to be from. They're being passed around from house to house. There's, there's no discipline that they're being taught. They don't learn how to read. They have no hope for the future. Your response to that should be sadness. There's a lot of other emotions that you may have when you think about that. But, but one of your responses when you think about that child should be anger. Because that's an injustice. Don't you see? When you think about the, the, the little school children at Uvalde... Just little kids going to school. Of course, we hear about that story and it's incredibly sad and it's incredibly horrible. But at least part of our response should be anger. Who is this perpetrator that came in and did this horrible thing? If you care about justice at all, and I hope that you do, you believe in the concept of wrath and anger. Now, here's the truth. Most of us only really care about injustice only really get bothered by injustice, only really do anything about injustice when we are the victim of injustice. We don't think that much about the ladies down the road. We don't think about that much about the kids. We don't think that much about any of this because, eh, I mean, I got other stuff to do. And again, I understand, like, we can't take on all the injustices of the world, but I do think that's telling. You know, some of y'all know last year we had a tree fall on our house and I've told this story to a lot of you guys. And in the middle of the whole thing, we had to move out of our house. It was a whole mess. The insurance company hired this really bad engineering firm. I won't tell you who I'm insured by or the engineering firm, but they both did not do a good job in this situation. I'll just say that. And they hired this engineering firm. This engineering firm, it was the worst engineering report ever. I mean, I literally at, at, at times was sending uh, my insurance company like papers about what steel was. But anyway... I, they, were, they were trying to like not have to pay for this thing that had happened to my house. And it was injustice, right? Now, it's a very like privileged injustice, right? My, my little house getting repaired. It's nothing like the examples I just told you. But, but, but because it was personal, man, if y'all would have known me, some of y'all that were my close friends or something like that, I was mad. <laughs> and I was put to action. And a lot of times we're like that. And to be honest, that's convicting. Because, man, I got so worked up about that. And I rarely get that worked up about the much more severe injustices that are happening all around me all the time. 
And I rarely put any of the kind of energy that I put into, you know, fighting my insurance company, into fighting any injustice around me all the time. And the reason is, is because my heart is not fully in line with the heart of God. Because God cares about every injustice. His heart breaks for every injustice. And he will bring his righteous and good wrath, good correction, good retribution against all of the injustice. He cares about his creation. He cares about his people. And when his creation is distorted, when his, when his people are sinned against, he will not hold those things lightly. But all throughout God's justice, as we see God's justice on display, we also see in the Old Testament his mercy toward his covenant people. God is this strange God that is incredibly just, but also for some reason enormously merciful toward his covenant people, people that when you hear their story are not innocent. It's not that God is only kind to the innocent because as we read the Old Testament and as we understand our own lives, let's be honest, no one's innocent. And all throughout the Old Testament, God shows incredible justice. His justice is on display, but toward his covenant people, toward his Hebrew people, he is so incredibly merciful. Jim Hamilton wrote a really helpful book, and he says the, the title of the book is what he says is the theme of the whole Old Testament, the whole, the whole Bible. And it's God's glory, God is showing his glory in salvation, the salvation of his people through judgment. Because what we have in the Bible is both the judgment and the mercy on display, both on display in severe ways. That's another thing that people are bothered by in the Old Testament, the severity of God's wrath. Stories like Sodom and Gomorrah, stories like the destruction of the Amorites. God is dealing with these things in a very severe way. But as you see the severity of his justice on one side, then and only then can you see the severity of his mercy on the other side. Speaking of the trees, right? So we had this whole ordeal with the tree on my house. And then just last week, we're finally finishing the project. The last thing I was going to do, the, my yard kind of got messed up with all the construction. So I was getting my yard fixed. And literally, the guy that's fixing my yard, he's there. He's about to, he's done. He's leaving. He's checking one little thing. He's standing in my front yard with an umbrella, okay? Standing next to this tree with an umbrella. He puts the umbrella up. He gets in his truck. Literally, as soon as he shuts the door, okay, I'm on the phone with him, and I'm inside my house. As soon as he shuts the door, a huge lightning bolt comes and strikes the tree. I, I hope I'm not under the judgment of God here, guys. But anyway, the, the lightning bolt strikes the tree. I think we have a thing, and it splits the tree. You can kind of see in the picture all the way down to the earth. And this guy literally 10 seconds before that was standing with an umbrella right next to that tree. And so I run outside, and I'm, you know, a little scared. But I, I was like, I mean, are you okay? Are you okay? And this guy is this, like, big, tough worker guy falls into my arms. I don't even really know this guy, you know. And we're like hugging it out. <laughs> okay. And we hadn't talked about anything spiritual or anything. And he's just like, God has spared me. 
And he had just witnessed this. And I, I, I can't really tell from the picture, but I mean, debris was all over our cul-de-sac. I was inside the house and literally when I heard it, I like crumbled in fear and I didn't even see it. It was just so, you could just feel the severity of it. The, the severity of that lightning bolt made him aware of the severity of the gift of life. And he was grateful to be alive. This is what I'm trying to say. These Old Testament narratives, they're so amazing. They're so helpful. Because in the same scene, you have the severity and the mercy of God all on display, all at the same time. And it's so telling, it's so instructive. Let me just give you, here's one example. Okay, I'm going to go to the most famous one, Noah's Ark. Here you have God, he comes to Noah. And he says, I'm going to destroy the whole world because of their sin. But you I'm going to save. And so I want you to build this ark. And Noah builds the ark. And everybody thinks it's ridiculous. Everybody thinks it's crazy. What are you doing? There's nothing like this. What are you talking about, Noah? And he and his family, they trust God. They listen to the voice of God. They get on the ark. And all of a sudden, the rains come. And this, you know, we, we use this story to teach like a nice little biology lesson to our children what the animals are. But it is a severe story. Everyone dies. It's a total destruction. Can you imagine that day? They are literally on the ark watching everything they've ever known be destroyed. They are hearing the screams of people crying out for help. And everything is being destroyed all around them. But they are safe because in God's kindness, he came to them and told them to build this ark. Can you imagine the wave of mercy that they must have felt that day? And they could only feel it when they looked over the side of the ark and see the severity of God's judgment against sin. In the Old Testament, we see the severity of God's judgment and it, and it makes sense of the severity of his kindness and grace. Now, it's hard for us to understand this. And, and one of the reasons, and this gets to my point about time, it's hard for us to understand this in this age. I'm going to go long today too, so stay with me though. This is important. It, it's hard for us to understand this because we live in a time where we are under the favor of God. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And you can't understand him without understanding the Old Testament. But Jesus has come. We're in a time of God's favor. Jesus has come. God has come to be with us. God was made flesh and has dwelt among us. And so in one thing, yes, this is the same God. But in another thing, yes, that's changed everything. And Jesus, when he began his ministry, and this is so important. Please get this. When he began his ministry, he went to the synagogue at Nazareth. It's, a, it's actually, you can still go there. It's an amazing place. You can literally go. It's a different building, but it's the same floor, the footprint. Jesus goes into the synagogue there in Nazareth, and he opens the scroll. An amazing moment. He, he opens the scroll to Isaiah 61. You know this story. So this is from Luke 4. And Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is his messianic announcement. Because he's appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then he says this, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops and he rolls up the scroll. Now he was reading from Isaiah 61. Okay? He was reading from Isaiah 61. I want to I now read to you from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because God has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. This is what I want you to understand about right now, this age that we are in. We are in the comma. <laughs> when Jesus came, he stopped reading at the comma because right now in his first coming, his first coming of Jesus is the day of the Lord's favor. It is a time of favor. It is a time of light. But in his second coming, and we read about this in the book of Revelation, in his return, we will see the wrath of God on display. We will see the day of vengeance of our Lord. If you haven't read, if you're, if you're bothered by the outpouring of wrath of God in the Bible, then you probably, and you don't think that exists in the New Testament, you probably haven't read the book of Revelation. And in there, I can't think of any other place where you see the severity of God's mercy and judgment on display at the exact same time. And there's a scene in the Old Testament where the saints of God, those in Christ, are riding with him, dressed in white, purified by his blood, on white horses with Christ. I mean, this is the scene. And the enemies of God are dead. And birds are eating their flesh all around. It's a severe scene. But right now, this day of vengeance has not come. Right now, it is a time of favor. Right now, it is a time of light. Jesus has come. Light is shining. The door of salvation is open. And this is a time of salvation for people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. The, the amazing mystery of the Old Testament has been revealed that the Jewish Messiah was actually the Messiah of the whole world. And now many can be grafted in and many can be saved. This door is open to all who believe in him. So look to him. The invitation is open to you today. If you don't believe in Jesus, look to him. This is a day of favor. This is a day of favor. But if the Bible's true at all, the day of vengeance is coming when God will finally settle all of our injustices. Now, I hope my third point seems totally unnecessary, why we need both. But I just want to say one thing. You know why we reject this? You know why this is a question? You know why from Marcion to this day we ask this question? You know why some churches only teach from the Gospels? Why people make a big deal of the red letters? And they don't, they don't, they don't, they're not, they don't have the voice of the word of Jesus here. They say, I mean, every sound is important here. Not a dot's going to be removed. And you know why? It's because we don't really want to hear from God. That's, all this comes down to this is we don't really want to hear from God. We want a God that we can form, that we can kind of conform to our image, that we can kind of decide his character. We don't want to do the hard work of trying to figure out the character and the nature of God. 
And my hope and prayer for our church is that, that God would free us from that. That we would love God so much, that we would know the true God so much, that we would delight in every sound that he's given us in his word. You know, the truth of the matter is, here's our posture toward the Lord. We're more bothered by the narrative of the Old Testament. We're more bothered by the sinful Ammonites being slaughtered than we are by the holy and totally innocent Son of God being slaughtered. The, the most severe outpouring of God's wrath was on his own son, Jesus. In a sense, the greatest injustice that's ever happened <laughs> is that the sinless son of God, the sinless Jesus, the holy Jesus, the one who always delighted in his father's character and word, would suffer in the place of sinful creatures, but he willingly did. He did enjoy because he loves us. He did enjoy to bring about our justification, to pay the price for our sins so that we could have fellowship with God, so that we could know God. God came to identify with you, to free you from your sins. And I want you to hear this, so you could be the covenant people of God. And as you are, you will experience his severe love, his severe kindness, his severe mercy as you look to his son, Jesus. You have heard it said that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. But I say to you, God in his mercy has revealed himself in both the Old and New Testament so that we could know him more fully, so that we could experience his grace more completely, and so that we could worship him more rightly. And so I want you to have a stand. Let's stand together as we close. And, and I want to invite you into the worship of the Lord right now. Father, thank you for speaking, for revealing yourself to us, for making yourself known. Father, I pray that we would not despise your word. We would have the heart of Jesus. We would delight in it. We would delight in all of it so that we could know you, Father, so that we could experience the severity of your power, the severity of your wisdom, the severity of your justice, but yes, Lord, the severity of your mercy and grace toward us in Christ. And in response to that, Lord, I pray that we would worship. Be pleased with our worship now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.